maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. there you're listening to one sensational shot electronic labyrinth my name is luke little boy and i'm joined as ever by my very dear co-host mr fletcher walton fletcher we're all about making the difficult decisions here at the one sensational shot network aren't we and uh, you and i after much discussion have decided to kind of essentially split what we have been doing into into two very distinct hopefully and different shows so this is the electronic labyrinth where we'll be going through some of our um uh, projects, I suppose, and, and that that's my DVD A to Z at, at, at the moment, and uh, that's some of the films we'll be tackling today. Uh, does that make sense, Fletch? Is, have I summed up uh, the, the difficult decision we've made here at One Sensational Shot, <laughs> editorially? We hope that Electronic Labyrinth will be sustaining and nutritious, but <laughs> it may at times be like eating your greens. So you may have to bear with us, but we think that it will yield results. And, and be a a hearty meal, if not exactly what you expected going in. So we will be going right through your A to Z. We'll also look at my Criterion collection. Today we kick off a segment which combines two things. It's a part of your Absidarian quest, but in addition to that, it's one of the reasons that we began the podcast entirely. We'll be looking today at American Graffiti by George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Two of the reasons we started this podcast, for sure, and uh, two films that mean an awful lot to me, uh, that are up there on my Desert Island Discs of films. And when I was re-watching uh, American Graffiti uh, this week to kind of, you know, just do my research, it dawned on me even more how what a fan of that film I am and uh, and how phenomenal it is. So, yeah, I'm really pleased that uh, in terms of my DVD A to Z, these two films... Both beginning with A's, I'm sure people at home have noticed, uh, ha- ha- happen to sit, you know, next to each other. And I tell you what, I watched them both in the same evening. And Apocalypse Now, don't laugh, it works almost as a spiritual sequel to American Graffiti. In a bit, it's the antithesis, and it works very, very well. The themes that American Graffiti is dealing about uh, and dealing with, it, they really do have uh, ramifications of what you then see for two and two some hours through Apocalypse Now. Yes, certainly, because it's the very kids that we see in American Graffiti. Literally in the narrative of the film, Toad, for instance, but it's that generation which only a couple of years later, as is mentioned in Animal House, a film that we'll be looking at in a couple of weeks' time, Mm. which were then sent off to fight this war. Chronologically, they're separated only by seven years, what I, what I did find charming and a little bit annoying, I rewatched American Graffiti, a film that's been one of my favourites since I was eight or nine years old, but which I think I've seen only properly as few as three or four times. Oh, I've watched right. the ending 20 times. I'm very nostalgic about that. Every summer holiday, I'd watch at least the last 10 minutes. Mm. I think in a way to connect with a part of, a part of me that wanted to revel in melancholia and wistfulness and reflect upon, like 
you, I have an August birthday, and mine's an even later August birthday, the 29th, if anybody fancies <laughs> writing us a card here at One Sensational that, Shot That Towers. was a very subtle hint, yeah. And so each birthday meant I had a full birthday week, but then it was back to school, and without fail, I'd always be so reflective and think of missed opportunities. And I, you shouldn't really do that when you're 11 years old or 13 years old. You shouldn't yet have that melancholia about you. I rewatched American Graffiti... I know Apocalypse now very well, so I didn't catch that, but I did go out of my way to check out Hearts of Darkness, which mm. combines a lot of Eleanor Coppola's footage on set during the production of Apocalypse Now, brought together by another set of filmmakers, George Hickenlooper and a bloke I'm not very familiar with at all called Fax Bear, to make a filmmaker's apocalypse, as they called it. Mm. The admiration I feel for those filmmakers is stratospheric, and I'll give our listeners a little bit of background. During this thread, it's our intention to examine the films of American Zoetrope and Lucasfilm. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, two best friends. Lucas looks up to Coppola as a big brother, as a mentor. They both drive each other on, and very early on, they would reach out to their friends and to each other for tips. As we enter the 70s, Coppola has had summer claim with the Rain People, and already Lucas worked on that set making his own documentary about the filmmaking process called Filmmaker. Lucas had made THX 1138, Francis Ford Coppola as producer, to no acclaim. It was obtuse and audiences really didn't have a lot to say about it and so it was then that Coppola filled Lucas with writing about what he knew and that set Lucas off on this incredible tear. And during this segment we'll look at everything that they did during the 1970s, a terrific pack of filmmakers including the movie brats you know about, John Milius, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, whose impact on this lot is minimal, Steven Spielberg as well. But as we move into the 80s, they broaden things and you begin to see how Lucas and Coppola work very hard to bring in filmmakers as diverse as Akira Kurosawa, yeah. Godfrey Reggio. Kasdan was triumphed and mentored somewhat by Lucas, who had him right on Raiders. So their successes came in the 70s and will hopefully remind listeners just how commercially and critically successful and acclaimed both Lucas and Coppola were. Because I think sometimes even me and Luke trip over our words and then we remember, no, George Lucas was an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two and Apocalypse Now, these were... They, they did incredibly well and it was only after the failure of On From The Heart that Coppola became poison in that way. Then we'll move through the 80s and... Once Lucas became more of a producer, flexing his muscles in that direction, and Coppola was persona non grata, but was still able, like Scorsese and After Hours, as we looked at many, many moons ago, was still able to do some work which, looking back now, is exciting and very worthwhile. And then into the 90s, and the resurgence that never really was for Coppola, and the... Well, how would you describe The Phantom Menace? How would you describe <laughs> it in filmmaking terms... If we can just divert into that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question, isn't it? And uh, I suppose I suppose you could certainly call it a, a comeback in the sense that he directed for the first time since Star Wars in 77, uh, you know, over 20 years later with Phantom Menace. So it was certainly a comeback to the director's chair. Certainly, you know, the prequel trilogy, some of the biggest films um, of, of their respective years worldwide. But... Obviously not, not a critical comeback by any stretch of the imagination and a little bit of a fall from grace in the public perception of, you know, 
he had the Midas touch for many years, and many people thought of him as a masterful storyteller, and that was tarnished, you know, with the prequel trilogy, rightly or wrongly. What's always been in my mind is whether or not people would have preferred that, like Coppola, he ducked out entirely for a little bit longer. As we say, it was 22 years between A New Hope and The Phantom Menace. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So 22 years without direct, which was longer than Malick, even. Coppola only went 10 years in between projects. He did The Rainmaker in 98 and came back with Youth Without Youth in 2008. And as Luke and I have discussed Coppola was able to commit himself once more to the small films that he had always wanted to make and did make with the Rain People but fell away from when his own career was somewhat derailed by his incredible success on The Godfather. So this is a series where we'll look at Haskell Wexler, Marsha Lucas, the actors that they use like Robert Duvall and Harrison Ford, Caleb Deschanel, all these luminaries which all came out of San Francisco and California at large who were all part of that fantastically fertile scene that nicknamed the Dirty Dozen, the um, USC film students, although, as we know, uh, Coppola came out of Hofstra. But to begin things, American Graffiti, Apocalypse Now. So, Luke, let's go. It's a film that I obviously had to go back to because I got into Star Wars in the 90s when I was sort of eight, nine years old and then started to hear about American Graffiti. And I went back, I discovered it, I think, late night BBC Two one evening when I was, I don't know, 11, 12, something, something thereabouts. And it's a film that, it, it, that I then grew up with and matured with, and it's, it's fast became one of my favourite films. American Graffiti! Where were you in 62? special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Baby, what's that? It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machine. It is the story, a group of teenagers, a group of friends, they're high school graduates and they have just one last night cruising before they go off to college so it's right going back like you say to after hours um which we were talking about as a kind of sub-genre many weeks ago of one crazy night films american graffiti fits within that and you certainly get the sense of it because it has a linear narrative but it's uh, there's not a whole lot of plot it's more a series of vignettes and uh, like you said francis ford coppola after the failure of uh, thx 1138 George Lucas's first sci-fi, hard sci-fi film that was very cold and hard about a lot of the realities that people had to face in the modern world. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola encouraged him to come along, write something light and fluffy, and, and sort of challenged him not to, 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 do, to do that. And, you know, he said to George repeatedly that, you know, you, you can't direct if you can't write, so you have to learn to write. George has always hated writing, but he definitely put the outline of graffiti together. Um, and I love that relationship between them, that they, they're encouraging each other. And Coppola is n- never hectoring, but certainly mentoring in that way. I remember I've read how during the writing of Star Wars, he all but chained him to the typewriter. Get this out, get this onto paper, make revisions, keep going with it. 
Yeah, and it came through because then when Apocalypse Now was in financial trouble <laughs> many years later, um, mm. Star Wars was a huge hit, and he telegrammed George to uh, send him some money, which he, he duly <laughs> did. So I guess that I guess that paid off. And do you have any actors spare as well? Because we we're down one Harvey Keitel, and Martin Sheen's not looking too cheerful either. He's just know? had a heart attack, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So George, George put together the skeleton of the script, and and like you alluded to, Fletch as well, sort of based on his what he knew, and this is his childhood experiences growing up as a teenager in Modesto, California, kind of small town. So I had, I identified with that as well, because ultimately I'm a sort of country boy, small town boy. So I I identified with that element of it. And there's definitely looking through the lens of nostalgia. uh, It's definitely looking back at high school and that kind of idyllic time in your life. But uh, basically, George describes it in part as a mating ritual that he observed when he discovered anthropology at at college. And he realized that this, it was a kind of mating (laughs) ritual as in, you know, cruising around in cars, uh, eating burgers and, and, and hanging out with girls in your car. It was a, it was a mating ritual that was kind of unique to the United States. I mean, hence the name American graffiti. It was a name that I know the studio didn't like, but I, I, I completely understand why he went for it because it was, it's about pop culture, but uniquely American and very distinctly American. It, it, and George describes it as that moment in your life, that last day of high school, when you have to leave everything behind and go on alone. And that's the most powerful thing for me. And, and to, to be very broad about it, each of the four main characters, they're based very loosely on the four stages in George Lucas's life. So you've got Richard Dreyfus, who has kind of top billing as Kurt. He represents the Lucas who went to film school, the Lucas who actually got his head down and, and, and made the big leap forward and went to film school. You've got Ron Howard, who I suppose is the part of uh, playing, playing Steve, and that's the part of George's life where it was more the, the pull to stay at home and run the family business. George's dad always encouraged him to... Um, stay home and uh, take on the family stationery store. The character of John Milner, played by Paul the Matt, which is um, George's time as as a racer himself. And uh, a lot of Star Wars fans know that the most pivotal moment of George Lucas's life is when he actually had a car crash, and that encouraged him. He was in hospital, and he realised that every day that I have after this is definitely a gift, and I have to use it well. And that's ultimately what spurred him on to go to film school. Um, And then finally, I suppose the other main character, if you like, is uh, Terry the Toad, who you mentioned earlier, played by Charles Martin Smith. And uh, he's he's a highlight of the film. He's definitely the comic relief, but he represents George when he was in sort of junior high, couldn't really talk to girls, uh, completely geeky. Um, And and it's very interesting that at the end of the movie, these four characters, they all go off and do very different things with their lives. I guess in terms of the industry at that time, this was coming off the back of things like uh, Easy Rider, where you could, you know, and Hollywood was looking to young directors who could make things very, very cheap that they didn't necessarily understand, but were going to appeal to young audiences. Yeah, and specifically Universal, after the success of Easy Rider by Hopper, decided to allow a clutch of young filmmakers to work within the system, but with greater independence than usual, as long as the budget was under a million. The films produced from that, American Graffiti was by far the most critically and commercially successful. Silent Running by Trumbull, really good, overlooked at the time. Bruce Dern in a greenhouse in space, probably all know it. Milos Forman's taking off. Hopper's last movie, I don't want to talk about that one. And Peter Fonda's The Hired Hand, 
again, an Easy Rider alumni. The studios were willing to take a risk in the early 70s because what they'd learned from the success of Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde at the end of the 60s was that they, the studios, were divorced from youth culture, but it was something that they needed to sell to and art that could be fostered. Interesting time during the 60s when Bonnie and Clyde was up for Best Picture in the same year as Dr. Doolittle. And the following year, I think, Oliver won Best Picture. And the year after that, Midnight Cowboy. Family-oriented musicals rubbing shoulders at the box office and indeed at the Academy Awards with urban realism parlayed by British New Wave directors, Czech New Wave directors. The studios had to remain relevant, taking small risks, low-budget pictures. The return on investment, Luke, you can tell us properly about it but the return on investment was phenomenal american graffiti was one of those b pictures and i i believe i'm right in saying to this day is one of the most profitable films ever made because for a budget of less than one million dollars it um it was a box office smash it was in the top 10 uh, domestic box office that year um and it made household names of the likes of ron howard so um and george you know george lucas himself as well so um it's a film that I lament the loss of people making films like this, people giving kids some money to go and make a film and just not really understand it and just whatever comes back, you know, we'll see how it does and maybe it picks up a, you know, a run on, on late night TV or whatever and eventually makes its money back. But um, obviously in this case, it was absolutely, you know, career defining for him. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, Fletch, how, what, what are your first impressions of graffiti when you were watching it, you know, as, as a youth? My first interaction with American graffiti was the gatefold vinyl. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, man, the soundtrack is something that we obviously yeah. will get into, and, and that's one of my favourite. I've got it on CD, and, and it's falling apart by this point, but the, the soundtrack is... I, I suppose I should say, from the very opening of American graffiti, I mean, it's, it's, the screen's black, you hear a radio tuning in, and it's going through all the local stations and the local pop music stations. It immediately transports you without a single frame of film, just with that audio alone, to to the time and the place, you know, the early 60s. And it sounds, you know, very similar. The Ramones did it many years later with their true tune, uh, Rock and Roll Radio, where they use the same device of having the radio tune in at the beginning and it takes you back with that nostalgic waft. And American Graffiti is, George Lucas, when he was making it and shopping it around, described it as a musical. Uh, Ron Howard has a very funny um, uh, story when he said he was being cast by George. George, very famously, will talk very little uh, in casting sessions and give give yeah. very little to, to the audience. Uh, sorry, to the actors. Ron Howard said, uh, oh, George, I'm really sorry that b- b- I can't sing. And George says, it, it doesn't matter that you can't sing. And Ron said, yeah, but it's a musical. And he said, it is a musical, but it doesn't matter that you can't sing. And that's the only information he gave him uh, whatsoever. And of course, like you said, the soundtrack was a big, big deal and a big part of American Graffiti. And uh, the the whole film is just wall-to-wall pop music pretty much the whole way through. Uh, Walter Murch, uh, one of our heroes, of course, did sound design and later you know, involved on Apocalypse Now. And um, he was music supervisor. Um, he, he says that now you have sound design, now you have music supervisor and these kinds of um, these kinds of terms. And he says that 
you know, back then there was no such thing as a music supervisor. George was the music supervisor, but there wasn't a title for it. You know, now you get people like T-Bone Burnett and people like putting these soundtracks together, don't you? But George then just had his stack of seven-inch vinyls and he was yeah. sitting there um, writing scenes to each of these records and figuring out what song he wanted to go over what scene. And then Walter Murch, of course, sound design, a role that's now with the likes of people like Ben Burt on Star Wars and Indiana Jones... You know, definitely that that's a role that we now have. And, you know, back then it, it was a slightly different kettle of fish. And the one Walter Murch does a phenomenal job with American Graffiti because he, he calls it worldizing the sound. That's the, 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 the phrase that Walter Murch uses. But, um, you know, there's a, there's some great scenes when uh, you see, for example, uh, Kurt will be running through the cars and the track that's playing in the soundtrack you can almost hear it coming out of each person's car stereo as he's as he's running through the cars in rapid succession throughout weaving through the traffic. You know, people will be indoors and you'll definitely hear the record on the stereo, but they'll come outdoors and you can kind of hear it echoing through the street. Definitely puts you in the moment. And it sounds silly now because you, you almost see them do that on EastEnders and then things like mm. that. But back then, this was a big deal. This was This was verging on avant-garde stuff. This was not the classic way of setting up a shot and, and setting up um the sound design for a scene this is this is this is very kind of modern modern stuff isn't it yeah there are many ways in which that film is groundbreaking in every way that filmmaking can be in all different facets of filmmaking the use of its soundtrack was groundbreaking it hadn't been considered that you could do that and i'll tell you what it does watching it now it reminded me of birdman by inyaritu oh yeah yeah really good point birdman is a film which I couldn't leave during the cinema. Inevitably, I always dash off for a slash during every film that I see, but I couldn't during Birdman because there was no safe time to go to the lab. Films have rhythms, and a seasoned cinema-goer knows that if you're 60, 70 minutes into the film, you can duck out for five minutes during... It won't even be a scene of exposition, it will be a clinch between the leads. But there's always a safe scene where you'll leave and you'll come back and you will have missed nothing. But you, I couldn't do that in Birdman. The beat of the film, the way that Inuritu had arranged the scenes consecutively and kept that, literally, that syncopation drumbeat in the background, made it feel like a play where everything felt absolutely essential. And American Graffiti felt like that, that as well. The songs, because they're pop songs of the time, seemed to run maybe two and a half minutes. And a lot of them, it felt as though there was nothing cut either. The song played out in its entirety and moved on to the next one, just like on a radio. Mm. And they they capped the scenes. They uh, they limited the length of the scenes perfectly. It wouldn't and surprise was... me, yeah. If George was literally sitting there writing to the records, um, mm. like, like, like I said. Um, and there's definitely a documentary feel to it. George Lucas often talks about a documentary feel that he tries to give you know, all of his films. And... And American Graffiti certainly certainly has it. I know that they used uh, Technoscope um, to to film it, and essentially it's widescreen, but basically takes um, half the frame uh, and of thirty two millimeter. So it gives it basically a sixteen millimeter documentary kind of look, and that was exactly what they wanted to do. And uh, George basically was um, telling an actor to go off and do something over there somewhere, and he would shoot through a long lens and just see what he got 
and then that's what he would end up with. But George was always trying to wait for people to mess up, and a lot of the actors talk about that. He was he was he would use whatever went wrong to try and give it an authentic feel. Ron Howard actually talks about when he was doing the screen tests, he actually had an improv test, which was the first time he was ever asked to do an improv test. And that this is what George does. You know, a lot of the criticism you've heard about the Star Wars prequels is that he's a very hands-off director. And maybe for those films, it doesn't work quite so well, I don't know. But in this instance, I would say it was the perfect thing to do. You put a bunch of kids together, you get them to kind of riff off of each other, and you, you wait for their little mistakes and their little flubs, and I, I think you get some real um, authenticity there. It's that Shane Meadows approach. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. In This Is England, in the series This Is England, a good third of the time, it's really difficult to watch because the improvisational skills of the main actors are variable. Vicky McClure is excellent. Stephen Graham is tremendous. Joe Gilgan's okay. And then some of the supporting characters, they can't pull it off. They don't have the dexterity in their language to make it captivating. Mm. And maybe that's one of the problems that Lucas suffers. As we go on in Lucas's career, it becomes all too a little austere. There's, there isn't a humanity to the humour. Yeah. In the same way that there yeah. is in American Graffiti. I was really laughing at the exchanges between Falfa and John Milner mm. when they're dissing each other's vehicles. Some yeah. real fun stuff there. Although George did write <laughs> it, of course, what shouldn't be underestimated and two people that we haven't mentioned yet um, mm. is Gloria Katz and Willard um, Hayek. Is it, I always say Hayek. It, yeah, it's hike. Hike. But anyway, um, <laughs> they, uh, they're two writers who George worked with regularly, and they punched up the dialogue on graffiti. They punched up the dialogue on Star Wars. Um, you know, I think they were coming up with things like, where did you dig up that old fossil? And, you know, these little <laughs> one-liners that, like you say, have humanity to them. Um, yeah. And they sound good coming out of the mouth of Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, I'm sorry if I scared you. You're gonna have to do one hell of a lot more than that to scare me. Yeah, but looking all over for you, man. Didn't nobody tell you I was looking for you? Hey, I can't keep track of all you punks running around here backwards. Hey, you're supposed to be the fast thing in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised driving a field car. Field car? What's field car? Your car runs through the fields, drops cow shit all over the place to make the lettuce grow. <laughs> That's pretty good. Hey, I like the color of your car there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? Well, you call that a paint job, but it's pretty ugly. I bet you got to sneak up on the pumps just to get a little air in your tires. Well, at least I don't have to pull over to the side just to let a funeral go by, man. Oh, funny. You know what? Your car's uglier than I am. That didn't come out right. Um, and they also went on to do other bits with him too. You know, I think they wrote Temple of Doom, um, Ed, um, How the Dark, which we'll, we'll get onto in very good time. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, they punched up the dialogue here, and I think that they spent a lot of time as well, in particular, on um, the Ron the Ron Howard uh, the Ron Howard stuff, and they spent a lot of time um, with uh, with the dialogue between uh, Ron Howard and his girlfriend. Uh, in the film, uh, Cindy Cindy Williams, who plays Laurie, because um, they identified with those two characters in particular, and uh, you know I think they'd been in similar situations um, previously. So that, yeah. that that was something that, and, and it's a very authentic relationship. It's it's young love, and Ron Howard is 
by no means uh, that redeemable, you know, throughout most of the picture. He wants to go away, leave his girlfriend at home, wants to mess around with other women, sort of openly tells her that. She's heartbroken, you can tell visibly, but sort of tries to keep a brave face and, um, and you know, gets back at him, gets mad at him, but it, it's only to, at the end of the film that, you know, Ron Howard essentially realises the error of his ways. But, you know, he he's, he's treats her terribly throughout the picture. It's a very my point being is it's it's it feels very real again going back to that documentary style it does feel like real teenagers by and large I know that the, yeah. te- the Terry the Terry the Toad storyline with Candy Clark as Debbie is is more zany and funny and the comic timing of some of those scenes is phenomenal I love um I love when he's trying to get the liquor from the from the store keeps asking various people to go in finally one guy does go in and then the camera just stays on Terry the Toad motioning back to the car that he's obviously got the liquor uh, the camera just stays there just with that gap to the right of the frame just enough so you know something's going to happen to the right and then the guy comes bursting out the liquor store again here you go kid throws in the liquor and then the shopkeeper comes running out and starts to shoot him uh it, it's absolutely phenomenal and um yeah so that's the more zany out there that's the jar jar bink storyline if you like and then and then we have um the ron howard cindy williams storyline which which is is feels very very real and true to life we'll be coming back to willard hike quite often as lucas said temple of doom radioland murders they were behind the execrable best defense starring eddie murphy and dudley moore Hike and Lucas were pals at film school at USC and they were part of a group known as the Dirty Dozen, so many of whom went on to significant acclaim. The ones we won't talk about so much, Hal Barwood, Matt Robbins and Randall Kleiser, although a lot of people know Randall Kleiser from Greece. The ones we will return to, Robert Dalver, the editor who worked on Black Stallion, Caleb Deschanel we've already mentioned, Basil Palladorius, composer for all of John Milius's pictures, and again and again we'll be referencing Howard Kazanji and Walter Merck, and Milius himself, all together at the same time, all of them aspiring filmmakers. And for the first 10 to 15 years of their Hollywood careers, the collaboration between these characters was regular, and it's one of the things that struck me about American Graffiti. I I want to ascribe to it a collaborative aspect which might be missing from the rest of Lucas's work over the last 20 years, and that might be one of the reasons why his films have become worse. Now, it's easy for us to say that he's been up on that ranch for two decades, surrounded by yes-men, a little bit like Kurtz in a way, completely outside (laughs) the bounds of control. His methods have become unsound. American Graffiti feels like this tremendous group effort, from a a collaborative effort from a a set of ferociously exciting young filmmakers with George Lucas at the helm, written by George, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike. Francis Ford Coppola is a big brother figure, overseeing the production, the backer that they needed, the man who, as you will know, when Ned Tannen at the screening, in spite of applause, still said to Lucas, this is unreleasable, what have you done? I can't do anything with this film. It was Coppola that immediately on the spot, before a very nervous Lucas, took out his checkbook and said, I'll buy it now from you, six million. And Tannen backed down. And sometimes you need a patron like that, especially someone like George Lucas. Again, not to presume what he's like, but... He's kind of a timid character, isn't he? And you can tell Mm. that he needed that big brother in that relationship. Then another thing, as I said, this is a film that's accidentally rebellious. And one aspect of that is that Lucas thought, I won't even have a cinematographer. Went in without a DP and then, yeah, eventually during production, Haskell Wexler, godhead that he is. And I was so mesmerised 
by the look of the cars, the way that the cars capture the light and the way that it's a film set at night, but that so perfectly captures the uh, the permanent illumination of an, of night in a town with the shop fronts and the car lights, the street lights reflecting off the cars. It looks so handsome and new as well even though it's 1962 it feels in a way like the future this film's like a it feels like a chrome dream yeah and that that all of the vitality of these characters and the things they might achieve in their lives are literally reflected off of their automobiles and the environments they're in so haskell wexler did phenomenally there walt merck as you've already mentioned just it was walt merck's idea to have that in the background the whole time to, to bring everything together and as i said in the way that birdman is relentless. Boom, 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 boom. You have the same thing in American Graffiti. They're they're very disparate scenes, and the performances vary. The interest you have in each character may vary at different times, but the soundtrack keeps it all going and makes it feel like a continuous ninety or hundred minute whole. And it was as as we said a long time ago. It was one of the first. It was one of the first one crazy night pictures. One of the first films to set everything over the course of an evening. Audacious. The the part he played was. I, I cannot be overstated. No, exactly. And then uh, chief among them as well, Marsha Lucas. I believe that in terms of the, the pursuit of equality within the Hollywood system, and there's lots of reasons why we shouldn't even care about that. Why do we want to watch Hollywood films? They're not really for us anymore. There was a very specific period where they were. We can turn away from that now. The female directors that we enjoy, Kelly Reichardt, they don't need to work within the studio system. But in terms of equality... It's important that Patty Jenkins gets her opportunity with Wonder Woman. It's important that we see female directors. I, I think sometimes that argument, the shrill argument, overlooks the vital part played by female editors and producers. And we have one here, Marsha Lucas and Verna Fields working on American Graffiti. Verna was sh fresh off Sugarland Express with Spielberg. Marsha was brought in. She'd already worked, uh, I think that was her first credit, but she went on to work with Scorsese on Alice Doesn't Live Her Anymore. She edited the conversation as well, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. Um, she's she saves these films. She's, Absolutely yeah. integral. She's, she's Taxi in... Driver as well, working on Taxi Driver. It's so clear during the 70s. If you, you, you take a step back, go in with eyes and you, and look at the details, and you realise Marsha Lucas worked on six or seven of the best films in the 70s and into the 80s. Yeah. She's as important as Thelma Shoemaker, who, of course, wasn't working with Scorsese at the time. Thelma and Marty met at film school and then there was about a 10 year hiatus where Thelma wasn't in the guild so she wasn't able to work with him and they, they rekindled and came back together on Raging Bull. So th that's the, one of the first things that struck me. How did you feel about this notion of a collaborative aspect already at this early stage? The Dirty Dozen that came out of USC. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people did think that as well because, of course, they had the dream that was American Zootrope that uh, they were all going to have this base in San Francisco to make their own films the way they wanted to. They had this deal with Warner Brothers. THX is released as the first of this suite of films and it bombs. Warner Brothers withdraws funding. American Zotrope, you know, is in, you know, financial um, oblivion and and Francis has to then go make The Godfather to, you know, just for money as a, as a gig and, um, and then George goes on to graffiti, encouraged by Francis. The cross-pollination here, like you say, everyone yeah. everyone trying to help out each other, um, keep the dream alive, the Zootrope dream mm. that, that by this point had been, felt like it must have been snatched from them. And, you know, 
they were constantly, it felt to me, like trying to keep that dream alive all the way through the 70s. And and it is, you know, Marsha Lucas, such a good example as well. She is all over these credits for, for, for these films throughout the 70s. And um, she did save Star Wars. Uh, I, I think that, you know, she helped with some of the writing as well. I think she's the one who said, if people don't cheer when the Falcon comes at the end, because Han's come to save Luke, then this film doesn't work. And it's things like that that I don't think George necessarily, they weren't inherently what he got. And... Uh, I think he was very embarrassed when people were laughing when Carrie Fisher kisses Mark Hamill on the the, the swing across the the bridge, and it, and she said, "George, they're not they're laughing because they like it." You know, that's yeah. that's what. So yeah, the the cross pollination of all those Zotrope um, alumni trying to keep the dream alive. Um, it's like you and I talk about. They just wanted to get away from everybody. Mm. That's what. That's always what they wanted to do. And Coppola has achieved it to an extent. Every every opportunity he's had. Back to the vineyard, back to the family estate with Eleanor and the kids. He's done it to the extent that he had children. Almost, <laughs> you sometimes feel it's with the express intent of making them some of the greatest filmmakers to work today. Mm. Like priming Sophia. Listen, you don't understand this now. You don't understand why we have to watch this Max Offald's double bill. But believe me, in the mid 2000s, to keep it all in house, to pass it father to daughter and father to son. And Coppola himself, his father and his grandfather were creative and they were musicians. And I've even, I've sat in the August Coppola Theatre on San Francisco State University campus, dedicated to Coppola's brother. I can forgive nepotism to an extent because we only, it only offends us when it's in an industry that we might feel somewhat jealous towards the success of others. Nobody complains when carpenters begat carpenters or butchers begat butchers. <laughs> but because... Francis Coppola's daughter wants to direct The Virgin Suicide. I think she might have something here. Yeah. For Luke and I, and I hope for you as well, it's so welcome to fall into the romanticism of these characters. That's the appropriate response. I think people speak about George Lucas in the wrong terms. They say that he ruined the Star Wars franchise. The temerity to suggest that this man doesn't know his own mind. Yeah. What George Lucas did was achieve what him and Francis set out to do. They got away from everybody. They had complete creative control. You may not like the prequels. Most people don't. They're not good films. Once you, when Luke, when you've explained the themes to me and the plots to me, they uh, that doesn't make them any better. I'm able to appreciate them more. But what makes me appreciate them is that they are from the mind of a single man, a single creative man. Yeah. George Lucas is inscrutable as a creative. I don't. I don't. I still don't understand what drives him. I can't tell if he is someone who is incredibly hardworking but unable to create. I don't think that's the case because you look at American Graffiti in THX, and it's somebody with great ideas who's able to think visually and apply them to cinema. Then you look at something like Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones, and you think this guy hates to direct actors. He seems to hate sets to the point where he'll completely CG them, like on Radio Land Murders. You feel occasionally like he's a businessman and a numbers man. Yeah, I but think... that's not it. It's it's so complex with that guy. He achieved what he wanted to. He wanted everyone to leave him alone. He wanted complete creative control. Now it's a bit of a I find it kind of a sullen teenager approach. Leave me alone. I'll do what I want. Yes, no one can tell me what to do. And I won't go back to the stationary store, you know. Well, this was... And even even that is... um, It makes me giggle the way that even in George Lucas's own life, the allegory, the metaphor, has no depth to it. He didn't want to remain stationary. 
He needed to move. He didn't want to work in the stationery store. He needed to get going. And he need, he couldn't remain stationary, so that's why he got into cars. If we, you know, a, a producer is reading that in screenplay and thinks, "Good lord, this is obvious." <laughs> no, that, that's uh, that's my life, fellas. Uh, <laughs> so, what, what were you going to say? I don't know. A whole bunch of things. Well, this was in terms of independence. George Lucas' independence. So, this was the second nail in the coffin, really, because the first the first time was THX, and Warner Brothers took it and edited it. This American Graffiti, Universal took it, they edited it. They wouldn't let him put it out. They took out two or three scenes. They took out the, um, when Ron Howard tells the principal to go kiss a duck. Yeah, I just found out about this because there was a re-release probably in time for more American Graffiti. So it was only in the late 70s re-release. And then there American was also... Graffiti came out in an edited form in the, in the, on its original release. Yeah. And then those edits were reintroduced once everybody decided George Lucas was a genius. And then it's how you begin to realise, he's been doing this his entire career. Coppola has been doing this his entire career. Coppola did it with the Godfather trilogy to make it into this 10-hour television epic. Oh, I really want to watch it like that. (laughs) Spielberg did it with Close Encounters. And the studio said, show us inside the mothership and then you can have your re-release. So, again, when we think of Lucas changing everything that we liked about Star Wars, that was not a new idea. He'd been doing it since... The very beginning, and one of the problems, I suppose, is that he'd been doing it with great success because that kiss a duck scene is great, and the the scene where the car Terry is with the car dealership, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's not the greatest scene, but there's nothing oh, wrong funny. with it. It's, 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 it's fun, the, yeah, it's great. It's re- it's really funny, and uh, it's a nice little performance. It's a great performance, and I love the absurdity of the guy sitting on the huge chair. It's obviously, <laughs> which uh, yeah, that rocking chair, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, only in America, I guess. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, like you, like you say, Lucas did hold himself up and um, in the in the later years and and wanted independence. And I think with Lucas, he is always trying to come up with a new or different way of doing something. And I think that fuels his creativity as much as just the end film. And I think you know such a big driver of him throughout the eighties, the nineties, into the prequels was coming up with new technologies and new ways to to you know, edit or do sound, you know, you've got Skywalker sound, you've got the THX editing suite, you know, all, mm. of, all of these things that are used, you know, every day by huge feature films now, you know, to this day, people go up to the, you know, John Favreau says that you go up the ranch, he was doing Iron Man, you go up the ranch to edit it, you know, because, because it's a great environment. And I think Lucas, as much as anything, that was the big motivator. I think, I, I don't think he even looks at his filmography and goes, what a great body of work. I think he does look at the businesses that he's created and the technologies he's created. I believe he still refers affectionately to Pixar as his little company because yeah. that was the Pixar computer that, you know, was was part of Lucasfilm that Steve Jobs then bought. Yeah, and all of that's been forgotten because the conversation's changed and the discourse has been lowered. 20 years ago, George Lucas was quite rightly regarded as Hollywood's greatest innovator. He was boundlessly creative and invented new tools through which film could be made. Then he made Phantom Menace, and the conversation moves from film fans to Star Wars fans. Such a tragedy that in the middle of the 70s, he wrote and directed something that people loved, took ownership of, and two decades later, he's stuck with a fan base that don't see him as a filmmaker. It's more like he's a toy producer. George Lucas continued to make films that were very personal to him, expressing himself as an artist. Fair enough, the films were ropey. Don't watch them. That's one man's vision. 
It's ironic that in the 80s and the 90s, Lucas argued against colourisation and in favour of preservation and then went back to his own films, began to mess about with them. But that's his vision. That's his art. It doesn't belong to the fans. As much as they want it to, it never will. I suppose that's why they're so furious with him. But the grief Lucas has received for two decades is completely disproportionate and out of order. He's an innovator, a filmmaker, an artist. He didn't mean to invent your childhood. We talk about Lucas's level of emotional sophistication in his art and in his personality, but it's extraordinarily juvenile of Star Wars fans themselves to criticise him in the way that they have. They deserve what they get. You know, the, the first Star Wars trilogy is... George Lucas escaping the stationery store. You know, he's Luke Skywalker leave, leaving the farm. He's doing what Richard Dreyfus does at the end of American Graffiti. He finally leaves Modesto, California to go and be a writer or go to film school, whatever it is. And that's what the original trilogy is about. The second trilogy, is, is, by the end of Return of the Jedi, uh, he and Marsha were going through a bitter divorce and she had had another relationship with the... Stained, the guy doing the stained glass windows, the, the artist uh, in the library of Skywalker Ranch, which was being built. The whole idea of the Star Wars sequels was to fund Skywalker Ranch so he would finally have independence from Hollywood completely. And yeah. he was always, he was, he was never, uh, you know, at home. They were, you know, it was taking, you know, a toll obviously on, on their relationship because he was hard working and I think certainly did adopt his dad's work ethic, you know, from the stationery store. You get up, you go into the office and you work. And they went through a bit of divorce by Jedi. And I, I truly do think that the prequels are quite, quite obviously um, autobiographical for the latter part of his life when he just wanted a little bit more power, a little bit more power to finally um, declare his independence. And then you turn around one day and you realise you, 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 are, you are the leader of an empire. And he, you know, he, he was the leader of a company that had all this merchandising and all of these other subsidiaries. And then you realise, well, this is what, isn't this what I was kind of trying to avoid? So, mm. so that, that's, uh, that, that I really do think the prequel trilogy is, is autobiographical in, in, in that sense. But um, you can't take away... I mean, American Graffiti, just to, I guess, get us back on point. When I was watching it the other night, I was almost breathless as, as to how good it is. You know, the way you were talking about the way the film just looks, the way it feels, the way it yeah. sounds. And to go back to it, those characters, such a key point in my life when I was really coming of age as well. It was the same era that I really got into Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Uh, another, an album about coming of age and having to leave home and not feeling necessarily comfortable doing that, having apprehensions, but ultimately knowing it's the right thing to do. Um, and I do, I always describe, I know we always talk about the Star Wars trilogy, but I always describe THX, American Graffiti, and Star Wars as the George Lucas trilogy. His first three films, they're about the same thing. They're about someone yeah. trying to leave. I, just, I, think, I think that's fascinating. And I, I think those three films together work really, really well. It's absolutely acceptable to see filmmakers uh, t to have motifs and even repeat the same themes throughout their work. You're looking to better yourself each time, but also doing the same thing to better understand yourself. And it is the same film again and again. It's somebody trying to get out. Spielberg's the same. How many of his films are about absent fathers and family separation? Jaws, Close Encounters, Empire of the Sun, Last Crusade, Hook, Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can, 
it goes on. Munich, War of the Worlds. In Lars von Trier, when he approaches a genre, it's his themes and his preoccupations laid out in a particular genre. Antichrist is Lars von Trier does a horror movie. Melancholia is Lars von Trier does a, an apocalypse film, an end of the world movie, a disaster movie. That's what we should expect from directors. Mm. Something, I'm not sure where we'll place this, but I needed to mention the beauty I found in American Graffiti in the quiet spaces. There's a couple of sequences. One of them is when Kurt is walking the empty halls. Something we've all done. It connected with me so immediately as though Lucas had, uh, in the same way that Lynch has a main line to something in the human psyche about what petrifies us, what things we all fear. When I saw Kurt Henderson walking to his old locker, I thought that really connected with me and the combination no longer works. And that says something, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not, it's not subtle, but the other thing is it's honest. There's honesty and there's truth in American Graffiti, which is lacking in a million other films we've seen and which is in short supply as well in the other films made by George Lucas. The quiet spaces of the radio station at the Denimont yeah. and the interactions there, they feel real. I suppose it's when the music stops. And another important aspect is, possibly purely coincidentally, Lucas decided that he wanted the score to be the pop soundtrack and he didn't need any other music. And that makes certain scenes so impactful. At Paradise Road, as the cars have crashed and Ronnie Howard runs up to us, it's Cindy Williams who plays his girl. Yeah, yeah. And because the pop soundtrack has stopped, there's nothing and it feels do it's, an, it's a documentary style. And it feels so much more honest because of that. Harrison, as Falfer is in the background, holding his left arm, which seems to have been bust up. And they have their moment as well. Uh, Bob Falfer and John Milner go back to their car and seem to have a, a recognition. The antipathy is lost. They're the same person. There's an observational quality to Kurt's character. With the other ones, they're, they're more active and engaged. But as a writer, perhaps... Kurt, Kurt witnesses things and they, they really it, it's as powerful as in a Richard Linklater film and that's an incredible piece of praise to lay on it we see things and we, we better understand him through the things that he sees but he observes, yeah, as you say, the clinch mm. between the pupil and the teacher, he has his own car he has the funny Citroen CV which again marks him as something of an outsider because the others actually care about their whips, yeah. but then he's being driven around by the girls, isn't he? Yeah not active in the same way that the other lads are because Terry cares so much about having a good ride. Yeah. Um, Steve already has one and John Milner has the best one, but Kurt's away from all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is where we can segue when we finally find that Kurt decides to leave. The others are going to stay. Milner and Terry the Toad are going to drag race and, and be best buds. Steve's going to get married. Um... Kurt, you know, gets on the plane, teary farewells, flies away. And um, one of the most powerful moments, I think, uh, in all of cinema is he looks down, he sees the girl in the car that he's been trying to chase all night, never quite caught up with. Uh, he has a smile of recognition. We see the plane going off in the distance and then there's the four yearbook, black and white yearbook photos of each of our four main characters. And then one by one, very slowly, we get we get what happened to them after the film. John Milner was killed by a drunk driver in December 1964. 
Terry Fields was reported missing in action near Anlock in December 1965. Steve Bollander is an insurance agent in Modesto, California. Kurt Henderson is a writer living in Canada. It's such a powerful moment. You know, the, the, the John and Terry, obviously, tragically, their lives are, are ended. Terry going off to Vietnam, this loss of innocence that George Lucas was trying to ju- juxtapose with Vietnam, mm. the loss of innocence of America. This was, a you know, this was a nostalgic look back at when America was, was once innocent. You see it at the beginning of Mad Men, don't you? That, you know, America is more innocent at the beginning of Mad Men. You see it delve toward the seedier 70s as it goes on. Mm. Um, and then Steve, who decides to stay, uh, becomes an insurance agent, and Kurt becomes a writer, living in Canada as well, which, of course, is... Um... I've always thought that's because Kurt will have fled to Canada to escape the draft. Mm. Probably a really good point. I hadn't even picked up on that. It's a, a special kind of person, a very singular kind of person that can be nostalgic about something that happened 10 years ago. That man is George Lucas making American Graffiti in 72 and asking and being wistful about a time that was only a decade before. Um, even we don't manage that. Even you and I look back to at least 2005. Yeah. Rather than 2007, 2008. But maybe it's that open-hearted, almost adolescent sensitivity which then lends such power to that title card. And it set me on my path in life as well, having seen that at such a young age. You're confronted with that, and that's that. And you think, gosh, that's so sad. Those, They've gone so quickly, and life does go so quickly. And what did Bolander do? Nothing much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's truth, That's and, and that is truth. And I suppose if we were being less forgiving, I could understand if somebody who'd never seen the film, someone around our age watched it, and remarked that it was being controversial or needlessly cynical... But the truth of the 60s and 70s and the truth of George Lucas's childhood and adolescence was that some people stayed in towns and never left and that some people went off to Vietnam and never came back and that lives are cut short for no reason. Yeah, I completely agree. It's the same with Stand By Me, which kind of has a connection because Richard Dreyfuss plays, and you can kind of, (laughs) in the way that we like to say, we can say, oh, Kurt Henderson became a writer living in Canada, then he moved to Castle Rock. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you you, you kind of, you get that feeling when you watch Stand By Me, because it's four guys as well, and because he plays a writer in both of them. I I think it's perfect. You're you're right. I suppose with Modern Eyes, it's almost a little on the nose, but it's... It certainly affected me as a kid when I saw saw it and saw that title card right at the end. And um, ultimately, you know, it's playing into the theme of the film. Loss of innocence, America's loss of innocence, America having to grow up, America having to come of age and face the realities of the world and what was going on. So, you know, that's that's what that's all about. And you say, you know, he was wistfully looking at only a decade ago and, and being nostalgic. I don't think any of us can underestimate the power that all that America had gone through in that time. Think of this, you know, Vietnam, civil rights movement, tremendous social change. New York going from, you know, the New York of the 50s to then the New York that you see in Taxi Driver, you know, the real seedy New York, you know, yeah. urban decay. And That's a really good point. And, that's a, yeah, and, that's and, a really and the point. industry that America, uh, sorry, American Graffiti then sparked. So I'll give you an example. One of the great things here at the end is that we then have... Uh, the Beach Boys 
All Summer Long, one of my favourite Beach Boys songs, comes in uh, with the little xylophone intro and the credits are introduced... The, the, the cast and crew credits are introduced with each note of that xylophone, which is wonderful. And then it, yeah. it, it cuts in. Now, that Beach Boys song, All Summer Long, is the only song in that film to be released a year after it was, the year after it was set. That Beach Boys song, All Summer Long, is, is released in 1963, a year after American Graffiti is set. Everything else is 62 or older. Now, that Beach Boys song as well has a line in it um, we've been having fun all summer long. It's not going to last now. So again, even though it sounds like a very happy song, it's ending on a down note. Now, at this point, when this film was released, 74, the Beach Boys released Holland, one of their last true, I would say, masterpieces, a very folksy, uh, rocky album. And the early 70s, they were supporting Grateful Dead. They were doing big rock shows. They all had huge beards. And they, were, they weren't selling huge amounts of records, but they were like a rock band by that point. American Graffiti comes out. It is only 10 years later than the 60s as such. But the wave of nostalgia and the industry that it sparked, the Beach Boys then turned into an oldies band. That's when they developed the logo of having the that neon sign Beach Boys logo. They did the yeah. 15 Big Ones album, which was a complete throwback, had loads of Chuck Berry covers on. And ever ever after that, that this is that, that that was then the Beach Boys that were on Full House, and you know that it was the Beach Boys that were the nostalgic throwbacks, carrying around surfboards on stage, which at the release of American Graffiti they hadn't been. I'll also mm. as Exhibit B, I would also say. Ron Howard went on to star in Happy Days, a nostalgic look back at really only 10 plus years earlier. But my God, how the country, I think, had changed in that time. You're right. It's intentionally or otherwise, it's interesting to think about the time that American Graffiti was released. Three years before Taxi Driver, as you say. And the marketplace it was released into. And to think that teenagers would consider it wholesome. Yeah, I know what you mean. And yet, that was 10 years ago. He was 28, 29 when he was making the film, looking back on a time 10 years before. Yeah, I think you're right. It would show a stark difference in in America between entering the Vietnam War and just about leaving the Vietnam War and everything that had happened in that time. And what happened next? What happened next was that through no fault of their own George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola became the kings of Hollywood. American Graffiti, on a budget of less than a million, made 140 million, was nominated for Best Picture, Lucas nominated for Best Director. Coppola went on to the conversation, still one of the finest films of that American decade and one of the best pictures, I'd say, of the post-war era. Then he followed that up with Godfather Part 2. Mind School says he around that time was working on Marsha Lucas with Alice Doesn't Live Her Anymore, then Taxi Driver, then New York, New York. In 77, A New Hope came out. Francis Ford Coppola of Zoetrope displayed his artistic intent by funding The Black Stallion by Carol Ballard, which is the first of a number of nature-oriented pictures that Lucasfilm and Zoetrope gave their backing to. Caleb Deschanel shot that one. Melissa Matheson wrote it, later to great acclaim on E.T. and recently with the BFG. Melissa Matheson, another woman almost ideologically overlooked by both sides of the Hollywood equality argument. And then, at the end of the 70s, into 1979, May 1979, after a shoot of more than 200 days, I think it was 238 days in total, 
concept talks of longer than a decade between Milius, Lucas and Coppola, and three years in production, Apocalypse Now receives rapturous applause at the Cannes Film Festival. I think it might be my favourite film of all time. This is the end, beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins, they gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the Colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate is extreme prejudice. It's phenomenal. It, it truly is. It's um, a film that I came to in my late teens. You know, I was getting on by the time I saw it. But um, it was a film that I always understood from a very early stage that it, it wasn't just a war film. And I, I don't even know if I was aware that it was adapted or inspired by Heart of Darkness, the novel. And uh, but, but nevertheless, I knew that it was about so much more. And, and, and it was, you know, it's, it's about man's relationship, isn't it, with, with war and man's relationship with his own psyche. And how how far up the river are you going to go <laughs> before you just descend yeah. into yeah. into madness? And um, my God, what an affecting film it is! Just from the opening shot, very easy to easy to watch something like that now and and accept it. But I watched that opening shot with the rotor blades, very very slow rotor blades thumping, and we see the tree line, the doors the end slowly begins to fade in the napalm that the explosion of the trees and all of this stuff in camera practical you know i'm not someone who insists upon impractical effects but when i do watch a film from this era and i look at it and i just think how how did they do this in camera get the shot there one sensational shot that's gonna look absolutely yeah. phenomenal uh and you know the rotor blades turn into the doors turns into a fan on the ceiling as as we're introduced to our protagonist and he looks up at the fan and then it turns back into rotor blades because he can hear the helicopter landing outside the hotel and just that that opening and, and the camera pans over his the d- d- detritus of the table which is cigarettes and alcohol but that opening the, the first what is it i don't know two and a half minutes is um mm. is that could be the film and <laughs> it would still be fantastic. The way its production mirrored its narrative is well documented, but what struck me, rewatching Hearts of Darkness for the first time in a long time, it wasn't intentional on Coppola's part to become Willard or become Kurtz, but the further he got into the film, the more he knew that the only way to conceive the ending was to keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. He talks about it often. He's very aware of what's happening. And that's a beautiful statement for an artist to make. The only way to finish Apocalypse Now is for you to let me finish Apocalypse Now. 
I have to get this out. And it might take 200 days shooting. It might take 250. I might die. Several times during that documentary, he says, I could kill myself. I could kill myself right now. He'd hold pistols. The pressure he was under was incredible. He told people, this film will get finished. If I die, I'll give it to Milius. And if Milius dies, <laughs> we'll hand it to Marty. And if Marty dies, then it goes back to George. But this film must get finished. My, my film is not a movie. My film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money. Too much equipment. And little by little we went insane. Watching the documentary and having rewatched parts of Apocalypse Now over the course of this year just because it's been on television or I've put it on Laserdisc or put the VHS in. Of course I don't have it on Blu-ray. Why would I, Luke? Why bloody would I? <laughs> I don't need to see Vittorio Storaro in beautiful high definition. I'll just crinkle my eyes and watch through the snow. The gratitude I have for these artists, these independent artists, and that's the, that is the prism through which we must view Coppola and Lucas, independent artists. The gratitude I have for the lengths they went to to commit this to film. And that's how I don't think that there will be another generation like this. That's why, that's the way in which... There won't be another set of 70s cinema directors. The toll is too great. It almost ruined Coppola. And then the next film he did, One from the Heart, did ruin Coppola. Zyrtrope was bankrupted. The banks came after all of its assets. In a gesture I find wonderfully romantic, George Lucas offered to buy the Coppola estate out in Napa and the Sentinel building in San Francisco in order to preserve a last redoubt for that independent dream. And to this day... American Zootrope functions out of that building. I've been to it. But I, how could we ask artists, I want Apocalypse Now from every director at least twice a decade. That's what I need, someone to go to their wit's end. But when they, when they can commit to it, the results are Apocalypse Now. We know the great quote. I want you to drop it into this discussion. It opens hearts of darkness. It's the quote that everybody knows. But there's no, there's no affectation by this point in the performances of Bottoms, Hopper. Scott Glenn barely makes the final cut. He must have been on set for weeks. <laughs> and all he gets is a close-up. When Willard finally arrives at the compound and there's a glance between him and Colby. But even then, you feel the connection between them. Cinema communicates to you how a man that was like Willard went upriver and found that he could never, ever go back. I mean, that's what happened with Coppola. Again, I don't think it was intentional. There wasn't pretense around it. He found himself in a situation where this is the only way it could go. And in some ways, I suppose, call it glib, but he didn't come back from that. And then personal tragedies in the 80s meant that, I think, I think precipitated his decline, certainly the, the terrible, tragic death of his eldest son. Mm. Yeah, gratitude is the overwhelming emotion that I experience watching that film. And that's essentially 
I think how the film yeah. is produced, uh, you know, they land to start shooting in the Philippines and there's a storm. There's a terrible, terrible storm. They're cut off from, you know, the crew is kind of cut off between bungalows where some of them are staying and the hotel where some of them are staying. Uh, they couldn't talk or communicate because it was, you know, communication phone lines were down, whatever. That was destroyed all the sets, wiped out all the sets, and they were really having to start, you know, doing a bit of guerrilla filmmaking to start getting this thing shot. Like you say, the ending was not quite defined. It had gone through several different drafts. And then the only way he could kind of come up with the ending was by by getting to the end of the film and then deciding what he needed to finish it. <laughs> So, Sounds like something you say with your coursework, doesn't yeah. it? When your parents <laughs> exactly. are on your case when you're 15. I'll know when I get there, mm. all right? Just this is the process. Exactly. But re-watching it again was great. And, and like I said, um, just... I mean, I'd only watched it about a year ago. I was also in the cinema. I watched the digital print when that came out, when they did do the HD digital print in 2011. I went to go watch that. My fondest memory of watching Apocalypse Now was when I got Redux edition, the Redux edition, the, what, four and a bit hour version which um, I got one Christmas and I sat and watched it drinking a bottle of whiskey with my friend Ben Jackson. And little by little, we went insane drinking this bottle of whiskey (laughs) throughout the whole thing. And it does get so psychedelic by the end. It's great. Pro-war or anti-war? Coppola called it anti-lie. I don't think it necessarily has an opinion. Um, But it is interesting that it, that it, the fact that it does deal with the fallacy of imperialism, I think. There's some really interesting moments with, um, even in the briefing scene at the beginning, uh, they're talking about Kurtz, and um, there's the line, uh, good doesn't always triumph. Um, and and I, I, really, I really think that it's the antithesis of Saving Private Ryan, isn't it? The plot, basically. It's a bunch of guys, through great time, energy, and expense of the American public... <laughs> and military yeah. have to go out to kill one of their own whereas private ryan is about you know the same thing but they have to go and save one of their own now they, they have to go out right. they have to go out and kill kill this guy 70s subversion that's brilliant and i think i can't remember what character says it but someone says it towards the end don't they um they actually call cool cool will it out on it and say oh what so we're just gonna go out and you know kill one of our own guys after all this and um I, I do think that throughout throughout the film throughout the film it's about that lunacy of imperialism and of, of power, the fact that these guys are having to you know great energy time and expense having to go and kill one of their own who up to that point had kind of been a model, um you know by all accounts had been a, a model member of the military, uh, a very de- right. decorated soldier, and that there there are some really interesting moments. I, I love the landing scene with Bobby Duval and they destroy a village um, just so they can start going surfing. I mean, it's not the only reason, but it is very, very funny that they, you know, Bobby Duval then forces, you know, a lot of the guys to then go surfing. This kind of idea of enforcing American culture upon yeah. um, upon a nation. And we get it again with the Playgirl bunny uh, playmate scene. It really is about this American culture clash of... And we cut to a lot of the Vietnamese who are watching through the fence. They can't be there with the troops. They're very calmly eating rice. Yeah, I remember that image as well. It does stay with you, doesn't it? It does. And these guys are so desperate because when the helicopter's finally taking away with the bunnies on it, they're clinging to the bottom of the helicopter. I, I think there's a lot of nostalgia in here. The nostalgia of trying to go back to that American graffiti world we were talking about earlier. 
these guys miss home so much, you know, like anything that reminds them of home is um drives them almost insane. And you know, they're watching the Playgirl bunnies, they can't even deal with watching these these girls and listening to this this music which reminds them of home. And you know, it's very interesting right at the beginning. Is is it Lance is on the boat and I think uh, they're on the boat, one of the first scenes on the boat after the Bobby DeVal scene, and he, they have Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction, and he, go, he goes nuts for it on the radio, on the Armed Forces radio. Oh, it's Mr. Clean. Yeah, yeah, Mary yeah it is. Yeah. Doing Mick Jagger, isn't he? <laughs> he yeah. is, yeah. And Who at the time of shooting, again, 14 years old when he was cast, about 15, 16. When, now, his character's meant to be 17, 18. He was even younger than his character. The things that occurred on that shoot, that this is something that I'm romantic about, which wraps itself around me and pulls me into the film. And the ex- it isn't a film, it's an experience. Everything about it is an experience, because watching that film, you begin to under- You can only presume, and then you begin to understand the sheer scale of what was occurring. The notion that Lawrence Fishburne could be over there, essentially living his part, playing somebody underage, himself underage, that Bottoms is out there high all the time. Yeah. On any number of things. Him and Hopper. LSD. Dope. Non-stop. They're gone. It's it's more than, it's absolutely more than a film shoot. It's it's more than anything. Yeah. Well, it's like sh- such shallow American culture, isn't it? And, and all these guys want is to have a home and to eat their rice, essentially. And I, yeah. I think Willard even says, just after the, the Playgirl scene, Charlie's idea of R&R is... Um, is you know, rat meat and cold rice, and, yeah, and yeah, he, right, he, does, he yeah. he's already moving too fast and he's dug in too deep, you know, and and it just goes to show the kind of idea the, the, again this lunacy of imperialism. I think that they're trying to impose this shallow American culture. They don't even know really what they're there for, and um, and yeah. the indigenous people, you know, really do have it together. They know what counts: food and shelter, and that's what that's yeah. what they're doing. So and the. the the imposition, or rather the forced imposition of order on this insanity, because the reason the top brass are going after Kurtz is, in a way, he's doing too good a job without their permission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Assassinating would-be spies. Winning hearts and minds, really, and, and becoming yeah. a god. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I rem- you reminded me of G.D. Spradlin's little speech about um, every man has his breaking point. Walt Kurtz's found his yeah, yeah yeah yeah. there is there's a talk about what lincoln called our the better angels of our nature and all of this that's a lovely scene and every part of it is expertly played i love harrison ford as a character actor i mourn the loss of that career because he suddenly became the biggest movie star on the planet but the <clears throat> improvisational <clears throat> coughing at certain points yeah that's real yeah, yeah, yeah. proper character acting uh, watching it i said he was meant to be sam rockwell that's Harrison Ford should have been Sam Rockwell, and then Jerry Seesmer sat there, says nothing during the entire scene. But there's a mystique around him, and then has the delivers, you know, with extreme, with extreme prejudice. prejudice, has only the one line. All of it's perfect. The spread that's laid on, and Willard looks across it. All of it mind blowing. One of my favourite scenes is with the roach when they get the chaos. Um, the 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 what would you call it? The the kind of the purgatory, the limbo. The fiery limbo when they get to the bridge. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
the I did think that was interesting as well because whenever you do see a bridge, it's it normally symbolizes point of no return, doesn't it? You know, in any film, and that really is the moment where they go over the edge, I think, and it does turn into complete psychedelic kind of filmmaking. And these guys have truly lost their minds because isn't it after the bridge um, we then have the coloured smoke and the arrows and the, and the kids' arrows? And, yeah, and yeah. When they when they take down the chief, but apart from the one that's a spear. Um, yeah, but I think that's that might be that might be the scariest part because once you're beyond the threshold, it's clear that it's a completely different paradigm. But it's balancing on that edge, as Kurtz kind of talks about the the snail crawling over it, the straight edge of a razor. Yeah, I love that line. It's the tension of living on that border. That's what's imparted to me during those bridge sequences. Like the man says, doesn't he? I'm glad you've arrived. Now I can get the hell out of yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Soldier, do you know who's in command here? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Does it glorify war? What does it do with war? It depicts war. But if you if you have John Milius write something about men, it will do both. It will it will reveal as, as far as he can the, the truth of that particular spectacle, whether it's the USS Indianapolis speech in Jaws, or whether it's the parts that he finds in in Apocalypse Now. The um, because he's a he's a war buff. He's got the kind of zeal about conflict that only comes from someone who wasn't able to serve himself. Yeah, we should say something he, like he, flat feet or a dicky ticker. He had asthma, didn't he? he so he, he he tried. That's what it was. He yeah. tried to sign up to Vietnam, but had asthma, and all, that always affected him, and clearly affected his writing from that day forth. <laughs> the, the, the subjects yeah. and themes he would write about. There's there's majesty in his writing. It's a shame that Hollywood can't utilize him. It's a shame that he's a pariah. He's beyond right wing. It's these things don't. There, there are some people for whom these things do not apply, and John Milius is one of those men. And his tragic irony was that he reached his apex. He's he reached the the apex of his commercial viability in the eighties with Conan and Red Dawn, and then it was decided that that was too much. Even though he was he was, it was in a way American foreign policy, and American culture at large had caught up to not what John Milius pushes upon people, but the grandiose thoughts he has. Repelled by itself, America lurched away. Hollywood realised, oh, we've learned a little bit too much about ourselves. We've caught our own reflection. Yeah. We can't go in this direction. And then they left Milius alone. He's among the greatest writers of dialogue, among the greatest sculptures of script. He, he was the one. He was the writer among them. Uh, Lucas had a great visual mind. They knew that Coppola was the genius director. But Milius was the writer. They all wanted to work with him. Yeah, absolutely. All of the movie brats and all of that dirty dozen. He was the one and... Yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's different for Lucas and Coppola because they withdrew themselves. They seem like happy men. Yeah, I... They're at ease with themselves, Yeah, I, I, think. I think they both are, yeah. Do you know what the man's saying? Do you? Those who are crossed with the red dots. This is dialectics. It's very simple dialectics, one through nine, no maybes, no supposes, no fractions. You can't travel in space, you can't go out into space, you know, without like, you know, uh, with fractions. What are you going to land on, one quarter, three eighths? What are you going to do when you go from here to Venus or something? That's dialectic physics, okay? Dialectic logic is, there's only love and hate. You either love somebody or you hate them. Incidentally, this is astonishing. The band that performs Susie Q 
in Apocalypse Now is Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids. No. Oh, no, it is. Yeah. No, it is. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that mad? Yeah. <laughs> the band from American yeah, Graffiti yeah, yeah, that yeah, played yeah, the yeah. stock hop. You're absolutely correct in that. Oh, my God. The, 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 so... the, pa- the pairing of these two films in this podcast, <laughs> just because they happen to be next to each other in my head to head, is phenomenal. But um, yeah. I really do think that Apocalypse Now is the spiritual sequel to to American Graffiti, and um, and the fact that there's a link there as well, as well as the many, you know, you know Walter Murch and you know the other other parallels too. But uh, wow, I, yeah, I'd forgotten about that completely. But you're one hundred percent correct with that. As you said, it's it's this cross pollination, this collaborative effort, returning to people that they enjoy using Robert Duvall all through that time from THX onwards up to Apocalypse Now and going back to Frederick Forrest and Harrison Ford such a fertile time should we talk about how great Bobby Duvall is because he certainly has one of the more iconic roles in the film um I love the smell of napalm in the morning smells like victory you know it's it, it, it you is know, iconic I think my favorite line of his probably best surmises the genius of John Milius and the truth. And again, what we're looking for is truth. His last line is, someday this war is going to end. He's completely ambivalent about it. He is ambivalent about it. Sorry. And and um, I think Willard goes on. He follows up the line in the narration then. He says, that would be just fine to the boys on the boat. But I'd been back there and I knew it didn't exist. That American graffiti world mm. didn't exist anymore. You know, he, he, he know, he's been back home. He knows it's not there anymore. Uh, and yeah. and this is this is their reality. Also, I'd forgotten when I rewatched it the other day. I'd forgotten. Everyone remembers. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I've forgotten about the beginning of that line. He's telling, recounting a story, isn't he? When they bombed the hell out of some area, and he, yeah. they went in and he said, "Oh, we didn't find one single body, but the smell. It smelled like yeah. victory." And again, it's that it smelt like victory. No, because he's saying it in a very matter-of-fact way, in a very gung-ho way. But um, again, the fallacy of imperialism, the fallacy of war. You know, we yeah. didn't find a single body. We napalmed the hell out of this area. We didn't find a single body. But it smelt like victory. And that's one of the few failings of the Redux, which I really enjoy. But Kilgore's role should end with that line. Mm. And he paces away. Then there's more in the Redux, I th- I th- but I, I like what... I think there's a few failings with the Redux, if I'm brutally honest. Yeah, but the whole way through, you really get a sense, when you watch the theatrical cut, you really feel going up that river. That's the, that's the whole thread, you know, of, of, of the movie, as soon as he's been briefed. Um, I think there's a line right at the beginning where he he says, the river snake through Vietnam plugged straight into Kurtz. And that sets us up yeah. for that journey. You know, we finally get to the bridge scene on the the cusp, and there's the point of no return, and after that it goes on pretty full psychedelic approach. Um, and I think that scenes like the, like when they then uh, have a, they trade a couple barrels or barrels of fuel with for the playbook, a couple of hours with the playgirl bunnies. Um, again, slows it down a bit, and 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 I I do think that uh, the French plantation scene again slows it down. Sometimes the George Lucas direction of faster, more intense is, is sometimes is sometimes <laughs> what you want. Um, and they've, they've, I think I feel Hollywood's come close a few times. Natural Born Killers, yeah, 
couldn't be made today. It's manic. Deranged. There's a there's a mania about Apocalypse Now. But Apocalypse Now is the apogee of Hollywood. It can't be bettered. But we live in hope. We li- and that it, sh- it should be reaffirmed that on this podcast, on One Sensational Shot, we do live in hope. We're not cynical about the future. The reason we have concerns for the state of cinema is because we love cinema. And we're desperate for something great to surface. Even if it's just one good scene in 90 minutes that you can point to and say, there was truth in that. I felt that. We've got plenty coming up. We've been your psychedelic soldiers, your continental kids. We've been Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. You've been listening to The Electronic Labyrinth, where we left Modesto with George Lucas and American Graffiti and went upriver with Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. Next time we pledge Delta with Animal House and tune into Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. Write to us on Facebook. Listen to us on iTunes. Visit the website, One Sensational Shot. Until next time. Sit.